Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powers, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again by my colleagues, Emily Riera and Essie Meravara. Today, we're going to talk about wage theft or underpayments, uh, an interesting issue. And I'm getting a lot of people asking my opinion in relation to whether the general election result and the and the ALP victory in the general election is going to be a major change and whether we're going to see new laws, etc. We have actually seen quite a bit of change in recent years. We've seen the serious contravention provisions included into the Fair Work Act, as well as some special provisions around franchises. Honestly, I, I don't see the laws being extended much beyond where they are in the current position. I think, as I think I mentioned on the last podcast, although it wasn't final, I think the Senate composition is not particularly favourable to a um, major IR reform. The ALP, even though they control the, the lower house, would have a lot of work to do to get IR legislation through. What I do think we are going to see, though, over coming years are much higher levels of enforcement in the sense that the uh, regulators, particularly the Fair Work Ombudsman, is, is likely to get perhaps a little more funding under the current situation. And as such, I don't know that the laws are going to change but we may see more robust enforcement measures if the Fair Work Ombudsman's given some more resources. And I think that's something that all employers should be aware of. So in a nutshell, what I really want to address are what we call the civil penalty provisions under the Fair Work Act. Now, there's numerous civil penalty provisions, which are sort of quasi-criminal, if you like, that involve the imposition of sort of large fines um, against both corporations and its directors. There's a range of different civil penalty provisions. I, I suppose really what we're focused on today is Section 45 of the Fair Work Act, which makes any contravention of a modern award a civil penalty breach, and Section 50, which is the equivalent provision for enterprise agreements. So really what we're seeing on the whole when it comes to underpayments is either breaches of a modern award or breaches of an enterprise agreement. In addition, however, there are civil penalty provisions as well relating specifically to the, the National Employment Standards. That Section 44 of the Fair Work Act means that any breach of the National Employment Standards is also a, a, a civil penalty provision. Um, and, and those are the things, and really when you're talking about modern awards and, national, and the National Employment Standards, I think that's the vast majority of what we see as being underpayments and now how they happen, I'll talk about in a little bit, but I think it's important to understand that there's accessorial liability provisions in addition to that section 550, which creates an additional penalty in the circumstances where a director or an officer of the company or someone, someone in their personal capacity is knowingly involved or somehow aided or abetted a contravention. You were going to talk a little bit about that, Emily, the accessorial provisions and explain how they work. Uh, yes, so uh, under Section 550 of the Fair Work Act, uh, a person who is involved in the contravention of a civil remedy provision is taken to have contravened that provision. And a person is involved in the contravention of a civil remedy provision if and only if the person A, has aided, abated, concealed, or procured the contravention or B, has induced the contravention, whether by threat or promises or otherwise, or C, has been in any way 
by act or omission directly or indirectly knowingly concerned in or party to the contravention, or D, has conspired with others to effect the contravention. So there are so four different options in the section with different qualities or characteristics, and only need one type of involvement. Yeah, you only need to be one, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think in my experience, the knowing involvement is generally the, the most common. The yeah. most common, yes. And so to be knowingly concerned in a contravention means that a person must have engaged in some act or conduct which implicates or involved in the contravention. So there'd be a practical connection between the person and the contravention. So there is two uh, major cases where some person have been held like involved in the contravention other than the, the company itself. Um, the first one is the Fair Recombusman and NSH North Pty Ltd. So in this case, the Federal Court of Australia held that a restaurant failed to pay its employees their minimum waste of pay, loadings, and penalty rates in accordance with the restaurant industry awards. And the court also found that the solid director, human, human resources manager, and store manager were accessorily liable for breaches of the Fair Work Act concerning the underpayment. And they were also involved in creating, producing false time and wages record and pay slips in response to a notice um, of produce from the Fair Work Ombudsman. So this is the, the HR? So that was the restaurant manager and the HR manager. Yeah. And they both get penalties. So for the HR manager was around $18,000 and the HR manager was imposed a penalty of $21,000. Yeah, because typically these these provisions, a lot of people presume they're just for directors, but that's a really good example where they can't. I think the HR manager in that case actually said, Oh, they told me to do it or something, didn't they? Yes, yeah, so she was saying that she was following her boss orders. This argument dismissed by the court. And the other major case was the Easy Accounting 1 to 3. So in this case, Easy Accounting was found to be involved uh, in his client's underpayment of wages. Easy Accounting disputed liability on the basis his role was simply to enter data into a payroll system. And they say they had no authority under ex partner with the client to review hours work or the rates paid to employees. And the, feder- the federal court rejected uh, easy accounting arguments, um, finding that the sole director was previously aware of an earlier fair Ombudsman audit that identified the underpayment by the client. And despite that knowledge, Easy Accounting continued to process payroll for the client at the same rate of pay that resulted in underpayment. So for the federal court, it was like the act of facilitating the underpayment, knowing them to be underpayment, that they were involved in, in the contravention in the case. Yeah, and look, I think there was a lot of panic in the accounting profession after that case. Evidence was pretty clear in that instance that the person actually knew evidence was pretty clear that the person they were aware yeah they were aware 
I think it's important for people to understand that these accessorial liability provisions are not just directors or the sort of shadow directors, officers of the company, people with significant authority. It really can be anyone that's knowingly involved. And, and that th those two cases are really good examples of that. Underpayments tend to arise from the coverage of a modern award or an enterprise agreement, which is one of the reasons why the victims of underpayment tend to be in that vulnerable class of employees in the first place, which, which is why it attracts a lot of, lot of attention. The Fair Work Commission as well, it's really important to understand, does not have a jurisdiction, even though they make the bond awards and they have the capacity to agree the, the enterprise agreements and they've got dispute resolution functions, they don't actually have a jurisdiction around underpayments at present. So generally the only option is for employees to go to uh, Federal Circuit Court and Family Court of Australia. Or, or, or the federal court itself. There's a couple of options in the in the circuit court. There's the small claims division, and that's for claims under $20,000. And there's also the, the main part of the court. In the small claims division, civil penalties are, are, are not available. Going to the court can be quite prohibitive and it can take quite a long time. However, employees also have the capacity to go direct to the Fair Work Ombudsman. And the Fair Work Ombudsman has got a, a variety of different functions that can help employees in an underpayment situation. And you were going to summarise the functions of, of the fraud because they're quite varied, Essie. Yeah, yeah. And just like everything, it's found under the, the Fair Work Act, um, Section 682, for those who are curious. But their function and purpose is to promote a harmonious, productive and cooperative workplace relation and to promote compliance with the Fair Work Act. And they also function to monitor compliance and investigate potential breaches and to commence proceedings and represent employees in court to enforce the Fair Work Act and, and other instruments like. Yeah, the way I see it is there's is three broad functions. They have that kind of assistance and educational type role both assisting employers and employees with understanding their rights and in particular the Fair Work Ombudsman website is a, is a very rich resource of information put in very, very, you know, very simple and easy to understand terms. They have an investigatory function, like most government regulatory agencies, they've got, a, they've got the capacity to produce documents, to enter premises, to require people to attend interviews in, in certain circumstances. And, and that's kind of what I'd say is their second function is that a little bit more adversarial kind of investigatory function. Their final function really is the prosecutorial function where they will actually function as party to litigations. And when we're looking through most of these cases and those two that you spoke about, Emily, both of those, the applicant in those cases was the Fair Work Ombudsman. So often in, in really egregious cases of underpayments, it's the Fair Work Ombudsman themselves that bring claim rather than employees. Although you do see cases where employees or a group of employees as a class can take d direct action against employers, large amount of time is the Fair Work Ombudsman. But those functions overlap a little bit. And I, and I think it's, it's something that's to, to be um, really conscious of when when employers um, are dealing with Fair Work Ombudsman is that a lot of the time those functions are at that entry level advisory educational level. And, and so often, for instance, employees might go to the FOIA with what they call a request for assistance. Now, that most of the time that what the FOIA will do then is they'll try and facilitate agreement between the parties, give them some information. For instance, there might be a dispute about an employee's you know, classification or something. And most of the time, the request for assistance is is really just a, a practical um, solution-based 
outcome. For more serious things, the firm might investigate. They also might do some sort of spot check audits from time to time, contact employers to ask for documents just to periodic audit. Often when those activities demonstrate that someone has a more egregious underpayment situation and prosecution can be brought. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see prosecutions and investigation activity increasing a little bit as we move forward into the next couple of years. You had a case, Essie, that you were going to talk about. Yes, it's um, Fair Work Ombudsman and HSCC Proprietary Limited and others. So this involved three corporate respondents who owned three Hero Sushi outlets, so and also five indo- individual respondents. Those were the owners of the, the corporations and also two payroll officers of the head office of um, Hero Sushi. So the Fair Work Ombudsman brought proceedings against Hero Sushi for underpayments against 94 employees, um, and those underpayments totaled over $700,000 in underpayments. And one of the employees in particular was had been reportedly paid a flat rate between $13 and $15 for all hours performed, working an average of 50 to 60 hours each week. And uh, he wasn't given any paid slips, so just pretty horrendous contraventions. And actually, Hirosushi didn't file a defense. They admitted to the contraventions and agreed to pay the penalties. And the parties ended up reaching an agreement on the amount of penalties and put that forward to the court. And those ranged from 16000 to $225,000 per respondent. So the higher amounts were for the corporations and the individuals were each to pay penalties in, in, in around that $20,000 mark. So all in all, that was $891,000 in penalties. And actually the court said that it may have even high, awarded higher penalties than what the parties had agreed to, but ultimately considered that even though the respondents had originally tried to sort of conceal what they had done, they eventually cooperated. So that was taken into consideration. And so they, the court decided that the penalties were, um, were appropriate, even though, as I said, they might have wanted to go higher. Um, and then they also ordered here Sushi turned to take a six-month audit at its own expense um, and that they display a workplace notice at each of the venues, um, which essentially contains information about the proceedings and the employee entitlements under the Fast Food Industry Award, along with just information on how to contact the Fair Work Ombudsman as a sort of um, preventative and also as a notice to, to others who might have been missed. Yeah, well, I think cooperation is key, and, and, and you see that a lot in, in the, in the yeah. case. It's not cooperation with the court process, but cooperation with the investigation as well. But those are still high-level penalties. When you do see the prosecutions, they, they tend to be those really egregious cases. But underpayments are not always a case of deliberate and intentional underpayments. Um, they can easily arise with modern award-covered employees in much less serious circumstances, but over a long period of time can create quite a significant liability. So I think there's probably some key areas for employers to look at. Number one for me is coverage. That's something that we we deal with and we advise on a lot. Actually, are your employees covered by a modern award or what modern award are they covered? Now, there's a lot of situations where that's not contentious at all. It's a huge amount. But 
the the modern awards system or the award system generally is is a historical system and it's grounded in you know what we consider some of the traditional industrial contexts and as we move forward into a sort of much more modern fluid flexible era we're coming across a lot more cases where coverage can be really contentious so as a starting point you look at the coverage of the award and then you also look at the the, the awards. some of the awards are, are, are industry coverage some of them are occupational coverage and that in itself can cause some issues for employers industry coverage generally is a three-part question it, it'll normally be clause four of the award that dictates coverage and for an industry award it will be first of all covering employees in a certain industry in the classifications set out to the schedule to the award the the industry definition in itself is generally in a separate part of the award and that's going to be critical whether or not your activities are captured by that industry and secondly whether you in whether you have employees that are actually in the classifications in the schedule the third part is then the exclusions and each modern award coverage clause has specific exclusions that clarify which award covers what this can do is it creates a very interesting nexus between related awards and the exclusions create a kind of hierarchy so for a really good example is the way that the restaurant industry award the fast food industry award hospitality general industry award and the, the registered clubs award another example is the manufacturing industry award and the food and tobacco industry award there's a there's an interesting nexus there sometimes where you've got people manufacturing both food and non-food items about where the coverage also the storage and warehousing award compared to the roads and transport distribution award some really interesting things there that can throw up some some curveballs there's also the interaction between the occupational awards such as the clerks award engineers award and the industry awards often employers will have multiple awards at play and they'll also possibly have the clerks award sometimes industry awards will either specifically include or exclude the clerks award from operating so that's another thing to watch in some instances and they're perhaps a little bit unusual but there are some instances where more than one award can apply and, and in particular more than one industry award can apply they will generally there's a clause at the end of most clause fours if of the modern awards there's a clause which provides that where more than one award applies the one that's most suitable in consideration of the context of the work and the work that the employee does will be the one that applies but overall it's quite a difficult quite involved in actually determining determining coverage now it's number one main error that i see employers make is actually incorrectly uh, they've either been advised or they've worked out for themselves incorrectly that the that the wrong award covers um, their employees, which can lead to sizable underpayments from happening without the employer realising and with the employer, you know, using their best um, best endeavours to try and get it right, but, but still failing to. The number two area, once you get coverage right, the second area is really classification. Each employee needs to be classified within what's normally one of the schedules to the award, which sets out what the different levels are for the purposes of rates of pay. So the classifications, which are generally level one, level two, level three, level four, that type of thing, which are based on what, not how well the employee is working, but what is the nature of the duties they're required to do and what are the minimum rates that attract, that attach to that. 
In many awards, there's also a pay point. So you might have a level, but also a pay point, which changes and depends upon how long the, the employee's been doing a certain role. So you might have level three, pay point one, level three, pay point two, level four, pay point three, that type of thing. So there's another, another dimension in the pay points, and those normally occur on the anniversary of employment, depending on, on some conditions in the award that are quite specific. Area number three is, is really considering, are the employees classified as being the appropriate type of employment? Meaning, are they full-time, part-time, casual? And does this satisfy the, the statutory or the award definition? This can be quite complex. It's a lot easier now. Um, there's, there's the legislative definition of casual employment, but there's also often an award definition in relation to part-time and some requirements that need to be satisfied before someone can be part-time. So for instance, if you haven't, if you're not satisfying the either the rostering conditions or the definitional conditions in the award about full-time or part-time, there is the possibility that someone could then under the modern award become entitled to to a casual loading by virtue of not satisfying that definition correctly. So in terms of full-time, part-time and casual, do you have your your employees properly characterised under that? Because the consequences of those can lead to financial underpayments. Often with enterprise agreements, less often with modern awards, there can be the issue of both fixed term or casual employment and, and often a commitment to ongoing or permanent employment, which can have consequences if not followed and can result in, in employers um, often being in a situation where they have insufficiently paid the employee for what they're entitled to under the award. From there, the next really important step is to determine the ordinary hours. What are the rules around ordinary hours that can be done by employees? When can they be worked? What are the rostering requirements? This can have an enormous impact on overtime as well as penalty rates that an employer can in good faith inadvertently miss and over a significant period of time that can lead to a significant underpayment which may attract the attention of, of the flow. So understanding what the award rules around over ordinary hours are is a critical first step. In addition, breaks is a really important one. What are the requirements of providing breaks to employees, both in terms of unpaid meal breaks for half an hour or, or afternoon tea breaks, the 10 minute short breaks, etc. And most importantly, what are the financial consequences of those breaks not being given? In some cases, this can be an overtime or even just double time after five hours. So it could well be that employers have made a, a sort of an informal agreement with an employee to work through a break, etc. But they might be falling foul of this very important provision. And as you can imagine, the last three or four hours of each day being treated as overtime for a six month or one year period can have monumental consequences in terms of underpayment or back pay. Once all of those things are determined, consideration then needs to be given to what's the ordinary rate for each employee? Is there a casual loading? Are there penalty rates? Are there weekend rates, public holidays, after hours, allowances? Every award is slightly different. Every award needs 
attention and often some of the awards have multiple different classes of employees that get different allowances or different rates depending on on how they're engaged or depending on what type of activity they're engaged in. Well, the second last one, annual salaries. If you do have award-covered employees that are subject to annual salaries, there's a good chance that there's specific provisions around how those annual salaries need to be managed or those are new from March 2020, but um, certainly in the hospitality industry, restaurant industry, the salary provisions have recently been changed and they create quite an onerous set of requirements on employers. So if if any employers are not aware of those, that's really important to get some advice on. Finally, record keeping, so critical that proper records are kept in accordance with Section 535 of the Fair Work Act and the Fair Work Regulations. I'm just going to raise that in any type of underpayment or civil penalty contravention case, there is an onus that arises in accordance with Section 557C that provides that if records aren't kept, the onus is on the employer to prove what has actually been done. Now, that's critical when it comes to hours, and what it means is that if you have a an employee, an award-covered employee that doesn't keep accurate records of the hours worked, the employer doesn't store those hours in accordance with the with the regulations, then they can go to the court and say that they were working whatever hours they like and it will be the employer that has to prove otherwise and that's quite a um, unacceptably high risk situation. So for the record keeping and particular for the hours keeping, that's a really important consideration and our advice tends to be that a contemporaneous timesheet should be kept for all employees that are covered by a modern award irrespective of whether they're paid by salary or not. So that's something to bear in mind, but that's the summary. And that's obviously is not as simple as just uh, employers choosing to pay their employees, you know, $12 an hour or cashback schemes, all the rest of it. It's really quite easy for employers to fall into a situation where they might be underpaying their employees. And those are the common ones that I've seen. So that pretty much wraps up underpayments. But if you've got any questions, you can certainly give us a call. It's um, an area we do a lot of work in. The good, the bad, the ugly is gone. <laughs> so my new game, I've asked you guys to have a look at the current affairs. So what you've got to do is you have to tell me, if you were a tweeter, would you tweet this? And the test is going to be you would either be very likely to tweet, likely to tweet, not likely to tweet, <laughs> unlikely to tweet oh i see do i so, lose the game if i don't if i'm not very likely to tweet something no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> i'll explain the rules as we go right. yeah who wants to go first do we have a a, a twitter character limit <laughs> yeah, that's you yeah you do how to stop One essie from talking 140 characters yeah that's right <laughs> who wants to go first um i'll go first but it's definitely not okay. within 140 characters um so, but essentially the Victorian government has actually accepted 12 of the 26 recommendations of the Ministerial Task Force on Workplace Sexual Harassment. Yeah, this is going to be one of mine. You've stolen mine already. No. Well, I went first, so I win the game, I think. <laughs> but out of those, there were two really interesting recommendations. The first was that the government will limit the use of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. 
where settlements are reached in workplace sexual harassment claims. Um, and that's to sort of uh, tackle the, the silencing of victims and um, especially in circumstances where there have been multiple claims against one individual in a particular company. But we don't know what it looks like yet. So it'll be really interesting to see what it looks like. I think at the moment, the government's just uh, said that they'll, they're sort of thinking about various ideas and that it's a really complicated area. And then the other key recommendation that was accepted was to treat work-related gendered violence and workplace sexual harassment as an occupational health and safety issue in Victoria now. Yeah, I was really interested in that. And that's why I was going to raise it. I think the NDA thing is really interesting and I'm not sort of sure how I feel about it. Like I I definitely get the idea, like you can't just pay people off and silence and then it's not helping the situation to allow people to sort of enter into NDAs. But on the flip side, I think it's really important to be able to settle matters. I think from the victim's perspective, often being able to achieve compensation can be really important from a practical perspective of being able to move on with your life you know find a new job if you need to a hundred percent and so so you wonder if if that's going to actually inhibit that because from an employer's perspective you sort of think okay um one of the key and it, it might be cynical and awful but one of the key motivators to most to, to to the settlement of most workplace disputes can be that capacity to control the reputation reputational damage that might arise out of it and if that's a key part of the leverage, is that actually going to mean that less employers are settling matters? I don't know. Um, yeah, I wonder how they'll do it. I'm really curious. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. But I would be very likely to tweet that, seeing as it was one of the ones I was actually going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I, do I get to rate my own? Do I tell my... No, no, you don't. Mm. So what do you think? Yeah, I'd be very likely to... You're very likely to. Yeah. All right. Nailed it. Nailed right. it. Emily, what do you got? Okay, so my first one, just because it was really related to today, subject of underpayment. Yeah. Federal Circuit Court had a decision where total of $355,000 in penalty against the operator of a Brisbane sushi restaurant after the delivery another sushi restaurant another sushi restaurant after (laughs) they underpay employees and falsify records and so this is among the highest overall amounts of penalties secured by the as a fair accomplishment under the provision introduced by the fair commandment protected vulnerable workers so that's a pretty high level of penalties there. Oh, yep. yeah. You know, I have it on... I'd, I'd, I'd say that's very treatable. I'd, I'd put that. Yeah. I just... I, I find that the Fair Work Ombudsman's kind of take care of themselves when it comes to the whole tweeting thing, so I think I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if need the help. No, I love it. I love it when they, they, post, they tweet about it. I get to just... It's an easy little retweet and it's always scandalous all right so you very likely i think so i think i'm just likely (laughs) uh my one was about i don't know if you saw the queensland you've been in victoria now we're going to go to queensland (laughs) the queensland government is looking to remove gender specific 
terminology. I was going to talk about that one, Brian. You got me back. So they've attempted to remove gender-specific references from the Industrial Relations Act, and in particular around the um, the provision of what's described as maternity leave in in the Queensland Act. It's had some mixed uh, reception. Most people on the whole are thinking that's quite a good thing, and I wanted to discuss it with you guys. There's a, a, an organisation called Maternity Choices that have taken exception to it. Not surprisingly, they do not have an objection to gendered names, <laughs> given that their name itself is gendered. They Their position is that sexed language, um, as opposed to the gender-neutral language, is important where the sex is relevant and, you know, de-sexing the language of legislation intended to support the reproductive rights of women is inappropriate, which is akin, they say, to the use of gendered language where sex is irrelevant. So it's just as important to use it where it is relevant as it is important not to use it where it's irrelevant. And they've also referred to gender-neutral language and the examples they gave was birth givers, breastfeeders, menstruators and people with periods is offensive to many women as they feel it reduces them to their reproductive organs and bodily functions. But there's also another organisation as well that I think was fair go for Queensland women said that they are, the gendered terms are relevant to the vast majority and that it's not reflected in the data, even though it's an admirable aim to hope that other people other than women will be involved in these things is not reflected in the data. As such, terms such as maternity must remain in the legislation. So I don't know. I don't agree with this. I mean, I feel like with also just thinking about thinking back to to all the legislation that's that a century or so old and written only for sort of using he or male pronouns generally, and that we know that that's actually you know, it's just not representative of our society. And I feel like if you're looking at the longevity of having a piece of legislation that's going to be relevant for a long period of time, then it should be more inclusive. And there's nothing incorrect about talking about birth-related leave. It actually kind of encompasses more. It's more clear from a from a legal analysis perspective to have one term rather than multiple different terms for the various different circumstances, especially when it is just for the provision of leave. I don't think it should be, I don't know, I don't agree. Well, I agree with you. It doesn't exclude people, does it? Like no. if, if you refer to someone as a birth giver and they can give birth, then great. Is that the word, in. is that what they, have they used the term birth giver? I don't, I don't, know. <laughs> I, I don't know, that was just in their submission, maternity choices. Is that tweetable? I'd no, say yes for me, I would have. <laughs> yeah, what on the scale, very tweetable, just tweetable or not? Tweetable or very untweetable? i just put it as tweetable, I think. Yeah. I think first yeah. I, said, I, I was thinking very, because, you know, I was just... I don't think I would tweet it just because the backlash is... Mind you, we're podcasting about it, so we're probably... <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, after this first round of this, I feel like I'd be great at Twitter, you know? Like, I'd just be <laughs> firing off tweets left, right and centre if I had the patience for it. Um... <laughs> All right, who's next? Is your turn? Is it my turn? Um, did you hear about the smiley face case? <laughs> I love the smiley face case. I haven't taken another one of yours, have I? No, 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 no. no yeah, right. Okay, so 
Federal Commission found that an employer unfairly sacked a worker because uh, they failed to use a smiley face in an emoji in a text message to their boss. Um, sorry, not in emoji, as an emoji. Um, and so apparently just for like the the background, they'd had a bit of a heated exchange of words about some chronic understaffing issues. So when the employee texted her boss asking about staffing, but didn't use emojis, the boss took this as being unfriendly behavior and, and terminated her employment. And Commissioner Simpson found it likely that if she hadn't been uh, unfairly dismissed, the supervisor would have kept her job for at least three more months. So they uh, ordered her for, to be compensated for the difference in her lost wages. I can't remember if that was like close to 5,000. I don't have that here, but um, yeah, hefty price. My takeaway from that case is I think that the Fair Work Commission need to have a special jurisdiction where they can actually say, not only was the dismissal unfair, but you are not mature enough. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the emoji, that is very tweetable as far as I'm concerned. That's getting a very likely to, what do you think, Emily? I'm putting a likely. Likely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Who's next? Emily, what do you got? Well, I didn't know about the game, so I just feel like this one is not going to be likely. <laughs> but <laughs> as a, an information. Um, so the Federal Commission were going to delay uh, Schedule X unpaid pandemic leave provision yeah. um, because we're just feeling like COVID was a little bit of think of the past. But unfortunately... Uh-huh. With the resurgence of cases, the Federal Commission so extended the operation of the Schedule X uh, in six, six awards, uh, the most high-risk and vulnerable sectors, so the healthcare, aged care, and other care sectors, until the 31st of December. So for six awards, including Chad's awards, this uh, specific provision for unpaid pandemic leave will still be in the award. So yeah. a little bit longer, unfortunately, in a way. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to be, get rid of that, but uh, still needed. And I'm sure I help some of the workers in the healthcare industry. Oh, definitely. Well, I heard Sally McManus talking about that the other day on the radio. She was saying, I think it was Sally McManus saying that while you've got rules around where you can go and what you can do and whether you've got to isolate or not, you need to have provisions to allow you not to. And it sort of makes a bit of sense in a way if you're going to mandate that. My my main interest is why why did they call it Schedule X? Does anyone know? (laughs) No. It makes it sound much more exciting than it actually is. It? Actually, <laughs> actually, it's Schedule Xavier, but just for short, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Schedule X. I'm. I'm. Gonna, I'm sorry. I know yeah. you didn't know what the game was. Yeah. But I'm be very unlikely to tweet anything about Schedule X. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like talk about the topic of COVID. Oh, COVID. That's pretty much it. I feel like uh, I think everyone's a bit sick of tweeting about COVID. Absolutely. Um, 
So whose turn? Macho, what, what do you think about the Schedule X SE? Are you going to tweet that? I kind of want to. Um, do you likely or very likely? I just I put it into likely. Likely. All right. How many down? Two, three, four, five. Me. Uh, Sydney Trains. Oh. They were refused relief from the Industrial Action Commission against the uh, industrial action, which I thought was quite interesting because a lot of people were expecting a similar result to the application in 2018 when um, when the union tried to shut down the whole network yeah. for one day and, uh, and DB Hamburger um, said that it was a risk to the safety and well-being of um, under Section 424. Uh, the same result, DP Cross this time said, no, it, it wasn't representing that risk. And partly that was because of the nature of the industrial action being a lot more nuanced than a, a complete shutdown of the network. The, the industrial action is quite a bit cleverer this time. So so credit to that. And I also can't help wondering, and I know we just said we don't want to talk about COVID anymore, but I can't help thinking that now compared to 2018 we're just a little bit desensitized to interruption i don't think it bothers us as much as it used to yeah right um, how often do you take the train <laughs> well since covid not much but um back in the day back in 2018 the whole idea of the network closing down for a whole day yeah. that was just like yeah no you're right where, yeah now that we've been through what we've been through globally we're just work from we're, home. no that's exactly more. it like work from home yeah that was it sydney trains cool. that's all i got really likely because i'm french <laughs> <laughs> you like the strike uh, exactly i support i support the strike i have to i'm i'm putting it under likely um likely. just because similarly to covid i feel like I posted about it too much already. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I can't work out the total scores, <laughs> but it seems like the NDA thing is the winner. Winner. Ah. So you're the inaugural winner of the yes. Tweet challenge. Thank you. Yes. And we have not very long because we have to go. So let's quickly just wrap it up with the movie. Did we watch it? We did. Did you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I quite liked it. Although I didn't remember it. I watched it a long time ago. I don't remember it being that long. Me too. And to be honest, I was 100% convinced I've watched it before. And yeah. I can tell you now, no, I've never watched it. You never had? No. Uh -huh. no. So I was the first. Um, or I watched it before and I couldn't remember anything. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, which I've not. Uh, I would have remember at least Tom Cruise. So no, yeah, never yeah, watched, yeah. never watched it before. I found it really long and a little bit slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bit, wasn't it? It yeah. was. Um, characters. I didn't mind Tom Cruise. I didn't mind his character. I thought Abby, the wife, yeah. other than the fact she was his wife, didn't seem to have much yeah. at all by way of personality. That's one of those classic examples that 
I didn't notice at the time when they sort of say that uh, strong female characters don't seem to be in movies very much. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, my favourite characters, I like Lomax and Holly Hunter, the private eye and Holly Hunter. Cool. They lifted it a fair bit. Holly Hunter was my fave, and it's funny because yeah. I mean I don't know if that's just because it's Holly Hunter though. Like you know, mm. she just has a has a Black thing about it, and she has a great accent. I love that. Um, but also, she she actually got nominated for um, best supporting actress uh, for an Oscar for this role, and she's only for this. Yeah, and she's only on screen for like six minutes or something. Yeah, really. Yeah. Wow. She was the only one to be nominated. Because she hasn't got long scenes, has she? No, it's it's all together, all up. It's five minutes and like fifty nine seconds or something, something tiny. But yeah, well, that is a definitely a good bit of IMDb trivia. It was the only piece, so you know, <laughs> savor it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what's the next? What do we say? And observations about the legal content. Is it realistic or not? I'm a bit concerned about answering that in case anyone thinks that we represent. Look, I I just, well, there is that. But I also just want to see their workplace surveillance policy. I mean, if they're (laughs) bugging his house and. I liked the comment that when he's applying for the jobs and the guy says, well, here, the new grants, you'll only be expected to build 2,000 hours per year compared to the normal 2,600 or 2,700. 2,000 hours per year is like eight or nine hours a day. That's all you have to do. So it's, yeah. I thought the interview was pretty intense. Uh, They treated it as like a cross-examination of a witness and I'm... Oh, yeah. Yeah. No woman within the partner as usual. (laughs) Of course not. Were there any women actually working at all? Were there any women actually working at the firm? Were there any women lawyers? No, 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 lawyers, not at all. I think secretaries, yeah. So, yeah, the secretaries. Yeah. Yeah. I actually felt that, for me, the bad guys just weren't bad enough. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because... The mafia guys, or...? Yeah. I mean... They just, or maybe it's because we've now watched Ozark and Breaking Bad and Better Call yeah. Saul. Maybe we're just the modern era has got a got a much more hardcore bad guy, but the bad guys just didn't seem. I kind of like at the end the bad guys were the lawyers. Well, that's what I mean, but they just weren't. You know, even the guy that the, the you know I forget his name, but the guy with the moustache, like the short sort of fatter guy with the. <laughs> With the grey moustache, like he didn't seem bad, like he was a bad guy, but he just seemed, he seemed yeah. to be too cuddly. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I like the music. That's the other note that I had. I Dave Grusin as a film score writer and as a jazz pianist. I thought the music was pretty cool. That was mm-hmm. one of my favorite things. Favorite scene. I think the whole with him running around the city with his overcoat and his briefcase. Oh, yeah. Have to have Tom Cruise running. Yeah, no, favorite scene, I'd still say, it was the interview. That was weird. It may, kind of made me cackle a little bit. I mean, the idea that this yeah. fresh out of law school guy would just have the confidence mm. to enter into that, mm. that kind of conversation. Pretty cute. My least favorite, and I watched this with my son, and he thought the same thing, was the whole, the whole business on the beach where Tom gets caught. Was, like That was dumb. 
It's dumb. Did you reckon it's dumb? Yeah. It didn't suit his character. No, it was totally out of character. Yeah. I didn't get when it happened. I was like, why? Yeah, yeah, it just didn't seem... Well, the thing is he's left the, the bar because, because of, the woman was hitting on him yeah. and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm going back. And it's like, oh, I'm on the beach. Oh, yeah. I've accidentally tripped over this person. Oh, now we have to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, was such- it just didn't seem consistent with his character at all. And it was such a non-issue in their whole marriage too. Like, it was, she she got over it so quickly. It was, yeah, you know, she it, went, it kind of just yeah. added to the length of the film. She went for a parent. It was pretty weak yeah. as a plot twist, I think, overall. Yeah. I gave it a seven. Oh, pretty high. Oh, was that too high? No, I was just thinking we've had all this negative chat and I was thinking a six. Five. Yeah, actually, you're right. You're right. Five and a half. Oh. 6.5 for me. 5.5. Five. 5.5. 5.5. 5, Essie. <laughs> no, 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 I was repeating... Emily's. Oh, I said five point five, and then it's six. getting worse. Four point five, like a Dutch auction. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. Well, thanks everybody. That's it for this week again. Um, Emily's got another appointment. We're going to go. We'd love to keep talking about the firm for longer, but we've run out of time. Um, if you need to chat about underpayments, um, give us a call. We're always here. It's an um, key focus of ours whatever stage of that particular journey you might be in or if you just want to make sure that everything's okay then you can give us a call about it otherwise we look forward to seeing you next podcast see you later